Well, good morning, Elevation. Got a bit of a different backdrop for you this morning. After basically six months in my living room and kitchen and hallway and wherever else I could find to record videos, I'm back in the inspiring confines of the sanctuary at 22 Willow. This past week, I got together with Graham Watson and Kristen Taylor, who round out our teaching team here at Elevation to do some brainstorming for the 2021 sermon series. And uh, of course, we were kind of talking about how 2021 is just bound to be a better year than 2020. Uh, but as we were going through it, I, I was thinking about how when we planned our 2020 season themes, I had this brilliant idea that we would have this uh, series uh, starting in September that we would call Returning to Harbor. Because typically speaking, in the summer months, people tend to scatter, they go away, church attendance well, lags a little bit, and this idea of us all coming back together and beginning a new stage of life. Now, back in June, when the idea of churches beginning to gather in person was a possibility, I thought, oh, we're going to time this perfectly. We're going to have everyone coming back, and this title that I gave came up with like 10 months ago, it's just going to be perfect. So we're not returning to Harbor this week. Uh, we're still in our homes. Uh, so I've decided to change things up and instead turn our focus to looking back over the last six months together. Because in the middle of March, 2020, everything changed, didn't it? Decades from now, people will be learning about the events of this year, much like we learn about the events of generations past. But here we are now, still in the midst of it, still learning, living it out right now. I listened to a podcast a couple of months ago with the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, and he talked about a new book that he had just recently released. The title of the book is God and the Pandemic, a Christian reflection on the coronavirus and its aftermath. Its aftermath? The book was published in June, June 19th. I'm like, how do you have an aftermath? We're still in the middle of this thing. Actually, I went and found uh, the, the kind of chart of uh, infections from the UK, which is where NT writes from, and I looked at like June 19th, and I realized unless he started writing that book like uh, within a week of when it was published, like they were still in the midst of it over there. But of course, far from being naive, N.T. Wright is only too well aware that we can't wait until a disaster is cleaned up and over with before we decide how we are going to react to what's happening around us. In fact, how we react in the midst of any given trial um, affects our experiences of, of the trial and it affects the experiences of the people around us as well. Charles Rigma has this line, he says, much of what we need to gain along the way as we walk the journey of life we can be empowered in the midst of our doing, and in the rhythm of praxis and reflection, we can learn what no seminar can teach us. And so as our Elevation community enters a fall like no other, let's pause to reflect on where we've been over the last six months and what it means for the road ahead. Wednesday, March 11th was a day unlike any other. After weeks of keeping an eye on this virus of unknown significance, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic, an announcement that brought our daily lives and routines to a sudden screeching halt. In the words of one journalist, there was before this day and there was after this day. So I decided it'd be kind of fun, if that's the right word, to go back and read some of the headlines that were making news during that week. And I would recommend this as an activity if you're interested. On March 11th, not only was 
COVID-19 announced as a global pandemic, but the U.S. suspended all air travel from Europe. That was a really big deal. That same night, the NBA suspended their basketball season. All of a sudden, these big changes were happening around us. Well, the next day, we got news that Ontario was closing schools for two weeks. March break was going to be not only one week, but now an entire another week without any, without any school for our kids. At the end of that article, there was a little note that had said, Ontario has 60 cases of COVID-19. 60 cases when schools were shut down. On the 13th, the novel coronavirus pandemic continues to spread with more than 125,000 cases and 4,600 deaths. Those numbers are significant, but they really pale in comparison to this week's numbers of 27.5 million cases and nearly 900,000 deaths. A week later, on March 18th, Canada closed its borders, and I think by that point we realized that this was not going to be a one or two week shutdown. The spring of 2020 gave whole new meaning to the phrase March Madness, didn't it? We learned some new vocabulary, things like flatten the curve, social distancing, self-isolation, Zoom bombing, and some new acronyms, WFH, work from home, PPE, personal protective equipment. Oh yeah, and then there was the whole crash of the stock market, right? The industrial, the Dow Jones, for example, lost over 30, 35% of its value. And there was an article, again, as I was reflecting recently back on those, the news of that week, that advised as global concerns about the spread of COVID-19 continue to ripple through global markets, experts urge Canadians to not react emotionally about the virus impact on their investments. Easier said than done when someone approaching retirement might have seen up to a third of their life savings disappear in the span of a week or two. Now, when I reread this latest headline lately, I was struck by two things. The first is the near impossibility of remaining unemotional in times of significant change. We are going to get emotional when it comes to things that are way outside of our control. But the second thing that's in this headline is the wisdom and the advice to avoid reacting emotionally. Having emotions, experiencing emotions, that's one thing, but reacting according to those emotions, that's something we gotta be cautious of. Now, the past six months have provided us with so many opportunities to put this advice into practice. But if you're anything like me, you've had at best a mixed bag of success putting this advice into play. I was talking with a friend recently, a few weeks ago, and we were just kind of reflecting on how this pandemic has affected our lives, and he made this really interesting thought. He said, you know what, normally when you go through something really stressful in life, something that uh, causes a lot of unrest in your life, most of the people around you, their lives are pretty stable. And so if your uh, marriage is in trouble, or if you're, you just lost a job, or if you're ill, or you've, someone, a loved one is ill, it's not that everyone around you is going through those same things. And he said, that's the different thing about this pandemic that we're going through now. It's like everyone is experiencing the same thing. Oh, you're experiencing tension with uh, your relationships? Well, so is everyone else. You know, you're dealing with a loved one who's uh, in a vulnerable place physically? Well, so is everyone else. You're dealing with anxiety or loneliness or questions about the future? Yeah, so is everyone else. And it's one of the things that's made this season challenging for us. But at the same time, there's also something profound about the fact that this is a universal shared experience. 
that we're all actually going through the same thing. Now, to be sure, some places and for some people, uh, this pandemic is having a much more significant effect. My brother and his family live in Cochabamba, Bolivia, uh, and their country is being hit very, very hard by this. But even so, we can still connect with one another because we kind of speak the same language and we understand what it's like to be in lockdown and to have all these kind of questions and fears that go along with this. Now, in this morning's reading, we come across the advice of someone who can identify with his reader's trials and he wants to help them navigate their way in keeping with their faith. So the reading is from Romans chapter eight. Paul wrote this letter to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Right at the outset, he reminds his readers of who they really are. Because when you go through a really challenging season, your identity can come into question. But the reading that we, come from, that we had this morning starts in chapter eight, verse 18, where we read, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, maybe the first question about Paul, uh, Paul's letter is, well, what kind of suffering? What are you talking about? Historians will tell us that this letter to the Romans was written about the same time as the letter known as 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives a laundry list of what suffering looks like in his life. Um, so I'll read this for you from 2 Corinthians 11. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, which if you do the math is 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea, I have been constantly on the move, I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? So in other words, name any kind of suffering. I've been through it. But what did he say at the end there? Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? You see, it's not only the things that happen to me that cause suffering, but it's also the things that I do to myself and that I do to others in the way that I react and respond to the negative things going on around me. In the earlier previous chapter, Romans 7, verses 18 and 24, Paul says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, regardless of the specifics of our trials and tribulations, Paul's language describes a weariness, a heaviness. It's language of defeat. And when we think back over these past six months, many of us have experienced at least a couple of the following. Isolation tension in our relationships with others, a job loss or significant changes to job, including working from home, financial hardships, illness, either our own or of loved ones, anxiety about a return to school, obviously a big thing this particular week, and just an unsettled feeling 
about the future. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, there is no grosser or greater misrepresentation of the Christian message than that which depicts it as offering a life of ease with no battle and struggle at all. Sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. Now, maybe that's not the best ad campaign for a life of faith. A life of faith is a battleground, not a playground, especially in a world where we are constantly told that life can be a playground if you only wear the right clothes or go on the right vacation or drive the right car or drink the right beer or have the right shoes. We're always told that life can be a playground, but, but what the Christian message says is actually, no, it can't. Life's a battlefield. Struggle, challenge, tribulation, they're going to be our companion in life. But at the same time, this may not be the most encouraging kind of ad campaign, but isn't there something refreshing about a more honest evaluation of life? This is how the New Living Translation um, takes, uh, presents Paul's words from Romans 8, 22 to 23. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit in us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. This passage just has so much to say about our present situation and whatever other challenging situations that we might find ourselves in. The first thing from this little section that stood out to me is that groaning is not only acceptable, but is actually expected for a people of faith. He uses the analogy of childbirth. If you were to expect that a woman giving birth would not groan because of the pain, would not ex express any of the, the pain or discomfort, that would not be reasonable at all. And I think that that's what, what Paul is saying as well, is it's totally reasonable for us to, to groan because of the pain and the suffering that we go through in life. Uh, we have the, I'd like to introduce the newest member of our Elevation communi community, Caden LaVey. Uh, Brent and Amanda had a baby just uh, under two weeks ago. And again, if you were to tell Amanda, hey, just, just focus on the baby, uh, the pain doesn't matter, well, she's not going to buy into that very quickly, is she? Um, the joy that comes on the other side uh, includes the pain and the suffering on the, on the way. So Paul says, yeah, we're going to groan. But the other thing is that groaning is actually an act of faith. It's actually a prayer, a longing. It's an expression of hope. It's, it's a, basically something that we do when we acknowledge our sufferings and our trials, that we say, this is not the way the world is supposed to be, and I'm not going to settle for it, so I'm going to groan. I'm going to put out my complaints before God, bring your kingdom, your will to this world, to this broken world that I'm living in. In verse 24, Paul says, we were given this hope when we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And that's maybe where things get a little tricky because none of us like being patient. Now, I had this thought. If we knew what was coming next in this world of ours, even if it was bad, like if someone were to tell us, okay, 
A month from now, we're going to be back where we were in March. It's going to be full-on quarantine lockdown. It's going to be three long months. You're going to be struggling to find toilet paper again. Uh, we're going to go through all that. But in January or, or by the beginning of February, things will turn. And then by May of next year, everything will just be completely back to normal, vaccine, everything. Like if we knew exactly what was going to happen, even if it was bad, I have this hunch that we would take that deal, that we'd say, okay, give it to me. Just give me the known rather than the anxiety of the unknown. But that's not how life works. We don't actually get to know what happens next. So we have to find a way to navigate where we actually aren't sure about what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after. I came across this great article um, about uh, something that the city of Tokyo in Japan is doing. They were kind of starting to do this in preparation for the Olympics, which were obviously postponed. But they had this architectural firm design uh, some new kind of funky public washrooms. And I'll show a couple of different images up on the screen here for you. The first one shows like what these look like. So they're transparent walls on these bathrooms. And I know what you're thinking. This makes no sense. Um, so basically, they wanted to address two different problems. The first one was that people don't like entering public washrooms because they're afraid they're going to be dirty. So if you had transparent walls, you'd be able to look in and see, well, actually, these bathrooms are pretty clean. The other thing is that people are always afraid when you, when you turn the latch on that door uh, that you're going to open it and there's going to be someone in there who maybe just forgot to lock the door. So again, if the walls are transparent, you can just see there's no one in there. It's safe to go in. Now, just to explain this, you don't actually go to the bathroom with the entire park being able to watch you. When you lock the door from the inside, the glass becomes um, opaque. It becomes kind of frosted, so no one can see in. But here's the kicker, and this is a quote from the article. Part of the thrill is that once inside, you can't tell if the glass is frosted or not. So people on the outside walking by in the park, they could tell, okay, the glass is frosted, someone is in the bathroom, but you sitting there, kind of doing your business, are looking out and seeing everyone walk by, and you have this like, kind of fear, like, what if the frosted glass isn't working? What if everyone can see me right now? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that's quite the thrill that I'm looking for in life. I think I could find some thrills in other ways. Uh, but there's still a good analogy here. Using these transparent bathrooms it requires an act of faith that the creator, in this case the architect firm, will follow through on what was promised. They promise that when you lock that door, people aren't going to be able to see it. Paul's message is that even in the midst of the worst that life can throw at us, we have good reason to hope that God will follow through on his promises. Earlier I read from Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, Paul answers his own question in the next verse. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This broken and fallen world of ours nailed the Son of God to a cross and left him dead, only to have God raise him to new life on the third day. That's the kind of world we live in, a world where even the most perfectly lived life will still result in suffering. But it's also a world where even the greatest suffering is no match for the power of God to redeem and restore and resurrect. I'd like to read another passage, a few verses after this morning's reading from Romans 8, verse 38 to 39. 
I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, earlier on, I said that how we react in the midst of any given trial, it affects our experience of the trial, and it also affects the experiences of the people around us. Thomas Merton writes, society was regarded by the desert fathers, so these early followers of Jesus living in the the first and second century AD, as a shipwreck from which each single individual had to swim for his life. They knew they were helpless to do any good for others as long as they floundered about in the wreckage. But once they got a foothold on solid ground, things were different. Then they had not only the power, but also the obligation to pull the whole world to safety after them. What a beautiful image. And how much does that speak to our world that sometimes feels like this is like a shipwreck and we are all floundering in the water. It's an invitation for us to get our feet on solid ground, not only for our own sake, but so that we can help pull others to safety as well. In this perpetual aftermath of COVID-19, God is inviting us to put our hope in him on the solid ground that he will give us the footing so that we can pull the whole world to safety. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to wrap up our morning with a song called Your Glory. The lyrics say, my life is yours and my hope is in you only. Now, the thing about this song is that this was recorded six months ago. Uh, This is a recording that you have not seen, however. Uh, When we were doing the recording for our second week of online worship, uh, we had this, one of the team members had an idea that, what if this drags on for another week? Should we maybe prepare ahead? And so the the team recorded a couple of, of extra songs. And this is one of them. It's a song that at the time speaks to this kind of unknown future that we saw in front of us and this idea that we have to cling to our hope in God as we head into these uncharted territories. And the song speaks to us today again, six months later, as we continue to look ahead, not sure of what the future holds, but it's an invitation again to remember that our life is God's and our hope is in him only. Now, before we wrap up, our time together, I'm going to invite you to stick around after the service to join in some discussion with our neighbors groups. Maybe you haven't been on one of these calls in a little while, given summer plans, and I encourage you to stick around this week. It's an opportunity to reflect on and discuss this morning's theme, and also just to check in and encourage one another. If you're not normally part of a neighbors group but are joining us online this morning and would like to join, there is a there will be a link in the comment section now that you can join. Before we sing this final song together, I'd like to close with a word of prayer. Lord, I give thanks for your good news. I give thanks that when we stare out into a future that is just unknown and uncertain, we can put our trust and our faith and our hope in you. You are that solid ground that we can gain our footing in that will allow us not to avoid suffering and anxiety and pain all through life, but it will allow us to stand firm in the midst of it because we know that you are able to raise us from the dead. God, we give thanks for your goodness. We ask that your spirit would encourage us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves facing and that we'd be able as a church community to help pull one another up and pull up the people 
uh, in the world around us as well. God, we give thanks for your goodness, and we ask that your peace would be with us throughout this day and the week to come. In Christ's name, amen.